Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. All right, so uh, Matthew 21 verse 1 says this. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves it is written he said to them my house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts hosanna to the son of david they were indignant Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself in the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Wow. Where do we start? Uh, Jesus and the disciples hijack a donkey, uh, ride into the city, stir up the crowds, flip tables in the temple courts, and then curse a fig tree. There is plenty of action in this week's text, but what does it all mean? Are these events connected to one another? And how are we supposed to feel about them? Uh, Just as importantly, uh, what did the original disciples feel as they witnessed these events firsthand? 
And the answer to those questions begins with what we call the triumphal entry, as Jesus finally enters Jerusalem. And in order to understand the significance of this moment, uh, we have to understand that it was common in the ancient world for a king to be celebrated as he entered a new city, and in particular, if he came to claim kingship. And the scriptures themselves spoke of Israel's promised king, who was to uh, return to Jerusalem after victory, taking the throne and making the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel a global kingdom. Okay, so you have a custom of the day, you have uh, the prophetic promises of Scripture, and on top of all of that, you have some unique history involved as well. Uh, 150 years before this moment, a man named Judah Maccabee led the Israelites to military victory over their enemies, and then he entered the city of Jerusalem as a victorious king to the shouts of the crowds, uh, riding into the city with the praises of the people ringing loud. And his first act after entering the city, his first act as king, was to go to the temple and to cleanse the temple of the pagan pollution which had been installed there by the Greek king. And if you find all of this history terribly boring, it's about to become relevant. The Jewish people knew that one day God would return to Jerusalem, that he would free his people from oppression under the pagans, that he would bring judgment on their world, and that he would usher in a literal, physical kingdom of God on earth that would be centered, it would be global in scope, but it would be centered around Jerusalem and around the Messiah. So they had all of these expectations, and they knew that one day the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem through the east gate and change the world forever. And hopes were high that Judah Maccabee would fulfill those promises. But after sort of achieving the victory and coming as king, He failed to make Israel into a worldwide kingdom. And and so the people realized, okay, he's actually not the one. He's not the Messiah. We need to wait. And in the 150-year period between Maccabee and Jesus, multiple people uh, repeated this same pattern of riding into Jerusalem, uh, claiming kingship, and then failing to achieve the vision. And and despite these many failed messiahs, and no matter how many failed, the people never gave up hope. In fact, this hope is so tangible that if you were to go to the east gate of ancient Jerusalem tomorrow, you would immediately notice two things. And uh, the first, and I think we have a picture for this, uh, the first is that the hillside that is uh, opposite the east gate, the Mount of Olives, looking over to the east gate, is filled with thousands and thousands of graves. And all of these people 
have paid exorbitant amounts of money to get a very uh, small plot that, that is at and facing the East Gate in Jerusalem. Because they knew that one day the Messiah would ride in through the East Gate and, and in their view, that would be the moment that he began to bring judgment on the, on the pagan world and the, it would be the end of the age. Meaning this is where the age would end, a new one would begin, and there would be the resurrection of the dead. It would all start in this time and place. This was the epicenter, the East Gate in Jerusalem. So they say, I want to be as close as I can to that spot because this is where everything's going to go down. Uh, the second thing you'll notice in, the, in our second photo is that on top of uh, the spot where the Jewish temple used to be, uh, the Muslims have now built their own temple called the Dome of the Rock, which you can see a little bit in the background. And not only that, but because the Jewish people wouldn't stop talking about the East Gate and the Messiah who was to come, they actually sealed off the East Gate and filled it with concrete, and, and, and then posted two armed guards at the top, ready and waiting in case any would-be Messiah might attempt to open this up and walk through the East Gate and stir the Jewish people toward, toward revolution. And, and so even today, thousands of years later, the East Gate is still a place of tension and controversy and, and hope and expectation and, and prophecy. I mean, all of it. Can you imagine what that tension might have been like in Jesus' day? As the entire city of Jerusalem was crammed to capacity with crowds of Jews from around the known world who had all come to celebrate the Passover or Israel's original um, liberation from slavery. And, and, and they're all crammed into the city. And then Jesus, who many believed was the Messiah, came riding into the city through the East Gate. I mean, this moment, the electricity in this place the celebration, the longing, the joy, the tension. It was explosive. Zechariah prophetically anticipated the moment using these words. He said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Daughter, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. And this is where things start to get a little foggy, right? Okay, righteous and victorious, we totally get that. We love that. But lowly and, and humble, riding on a donkey? I mean, what's up with that? Jesus enters Jerusalem as king. It is a challenging, provocative, explosive moment. 
uh, this action is so loaded with meaning that he is essentially saying, hey, God is at last returning to Jerusalem to take the throne, to become king over Israel and the nations. And I am the one from the line of David, from the line of Judah, who's going to rule on a throne forever. And the crowds are going nuts. And it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. The whole city was stirred up. And they asked, who is this? Waves of electricity are, are rippling around the city through the Passover crowds. And the whole city knows that someone has just entered Jerusalem through the east gate claiming to be king. Who is it? Could it possibly be true? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But it wasn't just the act of riding into Jerusalem through the east gate that was significant. The animal that Jesus is riding is also loaded with meaning because the type of animal that a king would ride into the city during these ceremonies would tell you a lot about that king. If a king rode into the city on a horse, it symbolized military victory and power and strength. But if a king rode into a city on a donkey, not only in this case did it fulfill scripture, but it also was symbolic of peace and humility and gentleness. And many people would not recognize him as king because that's not the type of king that they were looking for. But in either case, for this moment, as the, the city is stirred up, all eyes are on Jesus. What is he going to do next? Will he stir up the crowds which are at capacity and now finally go to overthrow Rome? Will he walk in the footsteps of Judah Maccabee and cleanse the temple and perhaps even the city of its pagan influence and oppression? What will he do? And this is where things take another fascinating turn. With all eyes on him, we read that Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The temple is indeed being cleansed, but not from pagan oppression and influence. Rather, he is cleansing the outer courtyard of the Jewish corruption which has taken root there. And from this moment forward, Jesus is going to clash not with Rome as anticipated, but with the Jewish leaders themselves 
and, and the Jewish religious establishment. The Jews expected God to return to Jerusalem in fiery judgment, but not against them. And yet, Jesus comes pronouncing judgment on the temple and the religious establishment itself. And this, I believe, is the key to understanding the fig tree. Okay, so I know there's a lot going on in this text, but stick with me for just a moment. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back into the city the next day, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Okay, to us... This is weird. Like, I don't understand it. It, it, The poor fig tree was already struggling, (laughs) right? Like, why did you come along and and kill it? And, And if you just read this in isolation, the moral of the story seems to be, well, just don't mess with Jesus when he's hungry, right? But again, because we're thousands of years removed from this time and place and culture, I think there's a lot that we miss. Uh, One of them is that this climate is ideal for growing fig trees. And the second is that fig trees, left completely to themselves, are very fruitful. Okay? So this is an unusual circumstance, that there's a tree in this climate that's struggling and unfruitful. And... To top it all off, many scholars believe that the fig tree is meant to be symbolic of the Jewish religious system. Okay? And if that's true, then it means that Jesus is creating a vivid analogy for his disciples. He's saying, in a sense, I am the true king who rode in through the east gate yesterday, who will be king over not just the nation, over all of creation. But I am not here primarily to bring judgment on the Roman Empire, as you so deeply desire. Instead, I'm actually bringing judgment on the Jewish religious system. It has become fruitless. And it will be judged and overthrown and in fact replaced. It will dry up like this fig tree and die. It has already become fruitless, but now comes judgment. In fact, if you read uh, this same account in Luke's gospel, we're told that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, Uh, This is on the donkey the the day before. And he saw the city. He wept over it. And and many scholars point out that was actually his first act as king, to, to weep with brokenness over the city. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, 
but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. The temple will be completely destroyed because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. God returned to the city as king, but you did not recognize him. And you are choosing instead to cling to your fruitless religious activities. And now the temple, which was the center of your religion and power, will be destroyed and in fact replaced. And though we don't see it, oh, you can go to the previous slide, and though we don't see it explicitly in this text, uh, Jesus is actually going to replace the temple. The old temple, which will be destroyed within years of Jesus saying this, will be replaced not with a new building or a new temple, but by Jesus himself. Jesus enters Jerusalem not just to become the true king through cross and resurrection, but also to become the true temple, replacing the old one with an entirely new paradigm. Now you can go to the next. Uh, Think about this. The temple was, in Jesus' day, the center of religion and power. It was the place where God dwells, ideally. The place where God meets with people and people meet with God. It was the place where people were made right with God through repentance and sacrifice. And it was the center of God's rule and reign on earth. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. You want to turn heads in ancient Jerusalem, you say something like that. The temple is everything to us. What do you mean you're greater than the temple? That's that's blasphemy. And then Jesus goes on to refer to himself as a temple. And he starts going around saying, hey, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And it's clear when he's saying that, that he is not talking about the Jewish temple, which is the center of power and religion. That one took decades to build, and there were single stones within the wall that weighed up to 40 tons. Okay? So saying that you will rebuild that in three days is like saying, I will rebuild the great pyramids in three days. Not going to happen. But in this case, Jesus isn't talking about the old temple made of stones. He's talking about the new one. He's talking about his body. Jesus is the place where divinity and humanity meet. Jesus is the place where God meets with people and where people meet with God. Jesus is the place 
where the full and final ultimate sacrifice was made that makes us right with God. Jesus is the one who is king over the nations, king over creation. He is the center of God's rule and reign. Jesus is the new temple. And he is going to bear much fruit where the existing temple has been fruitless. And you might have noticed in the narrative today that right after he flips the tables and kind of brings a judgment and condemnation in this fruitless place, right in the middle of the temple, they bring him uh, the, the blind and the lame and the hurting, and he heals them right in front of everyone in the temple. What, what is that? He, he's, he's bearing fruit in a fruitless place. And within hours of, of this event, Jesus' physical body will, will be condemned and destroyed by the religious elite, in part because of events like this one. But Jesus' body will be rebuilt, restored, resurrected three days later. And he will become the new temple which can never be destroyed again. What is the center of your faith? Well, it's not a building. It's no longer a physical temple or a city or a nation or even the Bible. It's Jesus. He is the fulfillment of everything that the temple was supposed to be. He is the new center of our worship. He is the new center of life with God. And thus our job becomes simply to be with Jesus. That's our job. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Remain in me, Jesus says, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself on your own. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb here and, and say that this ties everything together that we read this morning. Jesus enters Jerusalem as the true king. He enters the temple to proclaim judgment on a fruitless branch. And he bears much fruit right in the midst of that fruitless place. And, and then he curses the fruitless fig tree that may very well be representative of the old temple. And he tells his disciples uh, about this new power that's going to be available, that as they abide in him, 
Their faith-filled prayers will bear fruit in the world. And I know for some of you that this morning might feel like a confusing mess of images and metaphors and fig trees and donkeys and prayer. But in the end, it all comes down to this. Is Jesus more important than your religion? Is he more important than your rituals? Is he more important than your money? Is he more important than your citizenship? Is he the center of your worship, the temple to which you go to meet with God and be made right with him? Is your aim and goal as a disciple to abide in him and bear much fruit? Because the second that we shift, the second that we make something else the center, the second that we stop abiding in him, we actually cease bearing meaningful fruit because we've misplaced the center. And it happens all the time, all over the world. I'll never forget my first time in an Eastern Orthodox church when I was uh, traveling through Bulgaria. And I I went to see this famous cathedral that was there. And uh, it's beautiful. Uh, Some of these cathedrals uh, that were made hundreds of years ago are just stunning. And I got to go in there and I was kind of alone in the building. And it was just magnificent. And it just stirred my heart and my imagination. And I just sensed the presence of God in that place. It was, it was inspiring. And as I was uh, there kind of having my moment, all of a sudden um, people started to come into the church. And, and then more people started to come in. And then crowds were all of a sudden like pressing their way into the church. And um, I, I realized that I had accidentally attended like this special uh, service, this like special gathering at the church. Uh, and what they were doing is that they were bringing out church relics uh, for, for the church to, to see and, and enjoy. And uh, the thing that, that we kind of forget is that in Europe and the Middle East, they have a lot of stuff that's really old. Um, and, and, and historical. And you like go into museums over there and they're like, here's like the staff of Aaron and like the turban that Joseph wore and all this stuff. And you're thinking, I don't think so. Um, but it's really old. Um, and, and they have a lot of stuff that is genuine. That's the genuine artifacts from uh, church history. And so on this occasion, uh, they were bringing things out. And it was very impressive to me because not only do we live in America, but we live on the West Coast of America, and so our, the oldest thing we have is like the chairs that were <laughs> made in the 80s or something like that, uh, and, and that's it. But they're bringing out this stuff that's like thousands of years old. And my problem um, wasn't w- with this, with this uh, church service, wasn't that they were bringing out, you know, really old stuff from dead saints and all of this. Uh, my, my issue was uh, that the people who had come there began praying to the relics and, and began bowing down to, to the relics 
and, and began hoping beyond hope that they might be allowed to, to touch the relics. And, and all of a sudden, as I was watching, like my stomach just kind of turned. And, and just like this, this almost like anger, like the, the, this is wrong. Like this is, this is idolatry. And, and I looked around and unfortunately the tables were, were like bolted to the wall. Um, so I couldn't flip any of them. Um, it, it would have been like really, um, yeah, anticlimactic. Like I, but, but it was like the first time in my life that I was in a church building and thought, oh my gosh, like this is the only time I've ever been tempted to flip a, a table inside a church. But there have been times since then that, that I've been in churches where I had that feeling of like, I feel like something, something is off, like, they, like we've misplaced the center here. And in the same way, I've heard some of the worst forms of the prosperity gospel preached to the poorest of poor in Latin America. 40 minutes of how God just wants you to be rich, but how you should start by giving what you have to the church. 40 minutes, and never once did I hear the name of Jesus. And in the same breath, we have to recognize that the American church is prone to make prosperity the main point, or to make politics the main point, or to make nationalism the main point, which ironically are all three of the exact same things that the Jewish people were doing in the temple. It's about our nation. It's about our political power. And it's about our money. You realize that is everything that was wrong with the temple. If Jesus were to come in person today and tour his global church, there is little doubt in my mind that he would have some tables to flip. But whether you're in Bulgaria or Latin America or downtown Spokane, there's a pretty solid chance that as fallen human beings, we're going to mess some stuff up. And don't think that I've come here this morning to condemn the global church because each one of those churches that I mentioned around the world does certain things better than we do, okay? All of us are a mixed bag. I didn't come here to condemn. I'm here to confess. To confess that I am as likely to screw this up as anyone else to confess that I have a plank in my eye and that I've had seasons where I was fruitless because I made something else the center of my faith. Could be morality, could be nationalism, could be my political views. There's been times where it was tithing or, or church attendance or, or whatever but it turns out I actually need Jesus to come through every now and again and flip some tables 
and, and just clean some stuff out that I've accumulated, if only to keep me honest. Because if he doesn't, my tendency is to get preoccupied with other things and to stop abiding in him. And I confess that I have had seasons in which I said, hey, I went to church. Well, now I'm a pastor and I have to be here at church. But in the past, before I was a pastor, I had these seasons where I said, hey, I went to church. I sang my songs. I gave my tithe. All the boxes are checked. I'm done. And sometimes I sensed God on the other side saying, that's not where I wanted you to end. That's where I wanted you to begin. Because all of that other stuff that we do is all designed to usher us into the true temple that is the living Son of God. So yes, tithe, worship, sing, study, read, fast, pray. Those are all good things. But don't let any of them become substitutes for Jesus. Don't let anything replace him, not even Christian activities. It's not that we have a religion that in some way involves Jesus. It's that Jesus is the true king. And we have pledged our lives to him. We have brought ourselves under his kingship and we are allowing him to transform us from the inside out i root myself in king jesus in his love in his power in his presence in his forgiveness i choose to enter and worship in the true temple of the living god and out of that relationship and out of that intimacy i tithe And out of that relationship, I I engage with my church family. And out of that relationship, I worship. And out of that relationship, communion actually begins to have real meaning for me. Out of that relationship, I engage in national issues which have been ravaging our country. Out of that relationship, I give careful thought as to how I am to be a citizen of this nation and how I am to treat my enemies and how I am to treat the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. But all of it starts and ends not with religious activity, not with a political vision or even the Bible, but with a person the reality behind all other realities, Uh, the king above all kings, Uh, the person in whom we are made right with God and meet with him face to face, the Messiah called Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Only in him can we bear much fruit. Let's pray. Jesus, as we uh, get ready to head to the communion tables, 
and we get ready to um, worship together as a community through song, we start by recognizing what it's all for. We start by recognizing that 2,000 years ago, you rode through the east gate of Jerusalem, and through cross and resurrection, you became king over the nations, resurrected, exalted to the right hand of the Father, and that one day, every ounce of the created universe will be brought under your kingship, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are king to the glory of God. And in the meantime, Jesus, we know that you stand before us, arms open wide, full of mercy, perhaps even weeping like you wept over Jerusalem saying, come to me, all you who are burdened and weary and broken down. Come to me, for I'm humble in heart, and I'll give you rest. The only place you will find true rest is in the true temple of God, under the banner of my love, under the banner of my kingship, under the banner of my forgiveness, under no other place and in no other activity, religious or secular, will you ever find the peace that you desire? Except with me. Come into the temple. You are welcome here. This is where you were intended to be. You were intended to know me. You were intended to stick close to me. You were intended to cultivate relationship and intimacy and knowledge of who I am and everything else was supposed to flow out of that. And if you flip that around and, and, and put the cart before the horse, it's just gonna, life just isn't going to make sense. And so we come to you, Jesus, um, and as you humbled yourself, we humble ourselves uh, and admit that we need you and admit uh, that sometimes the temple of our hearts needs to get cleansed and, and that sometimes the thing that we need most is for you to come through and, and flip over the tables that aren't supposed to be there. And we invite you to do that work in our hearts. Even now, come and speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.